America, you're not special, but democracy is. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. There are 100 million refugees worldwide. That's the largest number ever recorded, even after World War II. We've got more refugees right now than we had after World War II. And Turkey hosts more refugees than any other nation. 3.5 million Syrian refugees fled to Turkey during that country's 12-year civil war. That's more than half the total number of refugees from Syria. They're living in Turkey. Millions of war-torn refugees have ended up in Turkey from Iran, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Tens of thousands of Russians have fled to Turkey after the invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, resulted in a flood of Ukrainians pouring in to Turkey. That's why Turkey's president, Tayyip Erdogan, is in constant contact with Russia's President Vladimir Putin, trying to stop the fighting in Ukraine, while at the same time negotiating agreements to keep the grain and fertilizer from Ukraine flowing through the Black Sea into the Mediterranean and over to Africa to prevent more famine. Turkey is strategically located, to say the least. And what happens in Turkey affects the rest of the world because what happens in the rest of the world always seems to affect Turkey. To understand the current tensions inside Turkey right now, try to imagine how much you all hate people like me from New York City. You think we're elitists. You think we think we're better than everybody. You think we're loud and that we want what we want when we want it. None of that is true about us. It's just how we're perceived because it's mostly true. Now, imagine an environmental catastrophe. A tidal wave hits New York City, wipes it out. Imagine if it wiped out Wall Street, for example. Just imagine Wall Street being wiped out by a tidal wave. Just Give me a few seconds for my hard-on to subside. Okay, uh, don't imagine Wall Street being wiped out. Imagine all of New York City wiped out. Okay, now you got millions of people like me forced to flee New York City. And imagine we somehow end up in a foreign land with strangers whose customs are not just different, but go against our teachings a place, we end up in a place that is mostly hostile and inscrutable. I don't know, let's say we end up in some horrific place like Florida. We end up as refugees living in Florida. Millions of angry New Yorkers forced to live in Florida. Millions of angry New Yorkers forced to live among xenophobes, racists, bigots, and morons. In other words, Miami Beach. That's what Turkey is, Miami Beach, but with a lot less loudmouth a-holes. 
So those are the tensions that you have right now in Turkey as they vote Sunday, Sunday night, as we count the votes Sunday night. There's a lot of tension, a lot of refugees, a lot of people living in Turkey who don't necessarily want to be living in Turkey. Turkey, as I said, voted on Sunday for both their president and their parliament. And it now looks like Turkey's presidential elections, the presidential elections, will be heading for a May 28th runoff with 69-year-old incumbent President Erdogan, who has been leading Turkey for 20 years, and his challenger, 79-year-old Kamil Kalikdurulu. I worked on that. Kamil Kalikdurulu. I'm not going to get it right, but I'm going to try. Uh, it's Erdogan versus 79-year-old Kamil Kalikdurulu. Both have failed to get more than 50%. It looks like they failed to get more than 50% of the vote, which is required by law in Turkey to be declared president. Kamil Kalikdurulu represents the center-left Republican People's Party, a coal, and that's him on the right. It's, uh, it's a coalition of six parties who identify with the secular principles of modern Turkey, founded 100 years ago by Ataturk after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the socially conservative President Erdogan, he's on, my, he's on the left. Uh, on the other hand, he has spent the past 20 years using Islam and his police to consolidate power, change the Constitution to hollow out democratic institutions like the judiciary and parliament, while arresting his critics along the way. Erdogan was elected prime minister in 2003. He was elected president five years ago in a snap election called during a state of emergency that he declared after an attempted coup against him in 2016. When Erdogan first came to power in 2003, he was not popular in America because he wanted to erode Turkey's separation of mosque and state, a core principle of post-Ottoman Turkey. President George W. Bush didn't like Erdogan because he, like all Republicans, is a strong believer in the separation of mosque and state. Separation of church and state, well, that's for another episode. But Republicans definitely believe in a separation of mosque and state. Now, Erdogan used the 2016 coup against him to declare emergency powers and then introduced a constitutional referendum, which resulted in voters narrowly agreeing to change Turkey's government from a parliamentary system to a more centralized presidential system, weakening the legislative branch by eliminating the position of prime minister, a title Erdogan previously held. I think he held it up until 2014 and uh, then became president. This constitutional switch to a presidential system back in 2017 
also minimize the judicial oversight necessary to rein President Erdogan in. Human Rights Watch reported that while Turkey's presidential election back in 2017 was free, Erdogan failed to win it fairly, considering all radio and television stations had just been privatized, ending up in the hands of Erdogan supporters who silenced any criticism of his government. After winning that election in 2017, President Erdogan fired 100,000 civil servants. Sounds like something Steve Bannon recommended to Donald Trump if he was going to get reelected. That was Erdogan's plan to fire everybody in our civil service and reshape it in Trump's image. After winning that election in 2017, Erdogan began arresting on charges of terrorism, journalists, human rights activists, as well as members of the opposition parties, including the leader of the People's Democratic Party. Human Rights Watch says many of these people were tortured while in police custody. Voters on Sunday also went to the polls to elect members of their 600-seat parliament which, as I said earlier, is much weaker today than it was five years ago, thanks to Erdogan's success in reforming the Constitution. As of late Sunday night, Erdogan's party seems to have won the majority in the parliament, which means had he kept the position of prime minister instead of eliminating it, he'd essentially have been reelected tonight. But there's no more prime minister in Turkey. It's a presidential system. Surveys going into the election showed Erdogan losing favor as more and more Turkish voters blame him for rampant inflation, which hovers anywhere between 50 and 100 percent. They also blame him for an inadequate response after two earthquakes ravaged Turkey in February killing 50,000. Some say many would still be alive if rampant corruption in Erdogan's party didn't lead to lax building codes. Millions were left homeless after the earthquakes, especially in regions where Erdogan is most popular, which might explain why he barely eked out a lead on Sunday. President Erdogan's challenger, Kamil Kalikdilaru, that's the best I can do. I apologize. Kamil Kalikdilaru was leading in the polls before the election. He presents the most serious threat to Erdogan in two decades. Much of Kamil Kalikdilaru's popularity flows from a promise that if elected president, he would restore power previously held by the parliament. He presents himself as the pro-democracy candidate. While Turkey is a member of NATO, it is not a member of the European Union, something Camille Kalik Delaru promises to change with his entire coalition, promising that if elected, 
uh, Turkey would join the European Union. Camille Kalik de la Rue has, has the support of the Kurds, which makes up anywhere between 15 to 20 percent of Turkey's population. Since 2015, thousands of Kurds have died as Erdogan, President Erdogan, cracked down on Kurdish separatists. Turkey has 64 million eligible voters, 3.5 million of whom live overseas, and their ballots, as of tonight, have yet to be counted. They're just beginning to count the overseas ballots. And that's where, that's where it stands right now. These are what the latest numbers show. Turkey's state-run news agency says Erdogan is leading, but not reaching the 50% threshold. He's got 494 percent of the vote. It's pretty close to 50 percent. His challenger, Camille Kalik de la Rue, has close to 45 percent of the vote. Now, Erdogan did win 60 percent of the overseas ballots in the last presidential election, so it is conceivable he can still find enough votes from the overseas ballots. There are about 3.4 million of them. Uh, he may be able to find enough votes to push him over the top without needing a runoff. But Sunday night, Erdogan said he would accept the results no matter what. Very un-Trump-like, if you ask me. Erdogan said he would accept the results no matter what, insisting if he fails to hit 50%, he will take part in the May 28th runoff. Turkey is important as I said earlier, uh, because it straddles the East and the West. And whether you think President Erdogan is a strong man in the fashion of Orban in uh, Hungary or Trump in America, the essential truth is Americans aren't special, but democracy is. What's going on around the world proves that Trump and the authoritarian impulses inside the Republican Party aren't special. We're just like every other country struggling to keep democracy. It's hard to keep a democracy or a republic or whatever you want to call the fragile system of checks and balances we barely have going here in America. America is not special, but democracy is. And if you don't protect and nurture it, you lose it. By all measures, America is less of a democracy than it was 15 years ago. You all know that. Freedom House, which measures freedom and democracy around the world, says America is becoming less free and less democratic giving us a score last year of 83 out of a possible 100. We have fallen behind in the past 15 years. We have fallen behind countries like Uruguay, Taiwan, Great Britain, Sweden, Portugal, Norway, Slovenia. Slovenia? Yeah, Slovenia. Holland, Japan, Italy, Ireland, Germany, France, Austria, Finland, and Canada. When it comes to democracy, freedom, and openness, 
we are no longer a beacon to the world. So what happened on January 6th was not special. Things like that happen all the time, all over the world. It can happen here because it's already happened. January 6th was blatant. It was on our TV for everyone to watch. But the slow erosion of our rights has been gradual. There's voter suppression laws, newspapers silenced by private equity groups buying them all up, gerrymandering, money in politics, corporate monopolies buying up our leaders, seizing agencies that are supposed to regulate them. The shift towards an oligarchy is quite subtle, imperceptible, but it's happening. We are less free. We're less free politically, and therefore we're less free economically and socially. Some groups have more political rights than others here in America, depending on who the ruling class chooses to demonize. We, as Americans, are not special. Democracy is special. And other countries are doing it better than we are. Other countries are freer and more democratic than we are. I just rattled off the list. We're not free. We're among the least free people in the industrialized world. Other countries do freedom better than we do it. Despite what our military, our military industrial complex, who want to spread freedom by dropping bombs on foreigners, usually people of color, Despite what our leaders and right-wing politicians with authoritarian impulses want you to believe, Americans are not free. We're not socially mobile. If you're born poor, you stay poor. People of color find it hard to vote. We can't uh, get our politicians to do what we want, like pass an assault weapons ban. It's been left to the courts to decide all the major issues because our legislative branch is owned by corporations. We are becoming less free each day. January 6th really isn't what we need to fear. January 6th isn't what we need to fear. What we need to fear maybe more is another September 11th. But we need to fear is an excuse for our president to declare emergency powers like Erdogan did in Turkey in 2016 after that failed coup against him. Thanks to the National Emergencies Act passed in 1976 on the 200th anniversary of our nation's founding, Congress passed the National Emergency Act and handed over to the president 136 statutory emergency powers 
to the president, emergency powers, 136 emergency powers, 13 out of 136 require a declaration from Congress. The remaining 123 emergency powers can be declared by the president without congressional approval. Now, maybe the Supreme Court could overrule these emergency powers, maybe, but it all depends on who the president is and who's sitting on the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, was all in on Trump declaring a national emergency before January 6th. The president has the power right now to declare an emergency, to stop an election, to do whatever he wants. What he needs, even though he can do it, but what he needs to sustain the emergency is support from friendly judges, lawyers, members of Congress, and of course, the media. So America, we are not special. Democracy, democracy is. All it takes is one emergency, one crypto strongman like Erdogan, who wants it. Declare an emergency, consolidate power. It could be Erdogan in Turkey, Netanyahu in Israel, Orban in Hungary, Trump or Ron DeSantis or pretty much anyone the Republicans want in the Oval Office. You know, we've all gotten tired of hearing this is the most important election of your lifetime, right? Every election is the most important election of our lifetime. Well, with Trump or no Trump, turns out since 1776, every election has been the most important election of America's lifetime. Turkey right now is fighting for its democracy this evening, tomorrow, up until May 28th. Turkey is fighting for its democracy. Will you fight for ours? Will you vote? Will you demand action from your leaders? Will you cancel Netflix, put down the video games? and participate in what's left of our republic. Freedom is a muscle. It weakens without you and me exercising it. Turkey, like America, is less free tonight. America isn't special. Democracy is. Or what's left of it. Please like this video, that's the best way to help the show. Please share it if you can. Please subscribe to my channel. We do office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Please subscribe to my newsletter. Cancel your subscription to Netflix and Hulu. Get going. <laughs> Howie Klein from 
Down With Tyranny joins us, and then my exclusive interview with former President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. It is not Robert Smigel. People think it is Donald J. Trump will be joining us at the end of tonight's episode. Now, George Soros has been trending all day on Twitter with rumors of his demise. Soros had a take to social media at the end of the day to insist, no, I'm very much still here. So why would Twitter be spreading the rumor that George Soros is dead? Could it have something to do with George Soros believing Tesla is dead, which doesn't make the owner of Twitter, who also owns Tesla, Elon Musk, happy? Could it have something to do with that? You see, Soros is the world's biggest short seller. And according to recent filings, George Soros held 132,000 shares of Tesla as of December 31st of last year. That's according to file filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. But we are now learning that at the end of March, George Soros dumped all his shares in Tesla. Could that be why there are now false reports of George Soros's death on Twitter trending all day? A woman who worked for Rudy Giuliani from 2019 until 2021 filed a lawsuit on Monday in Manhattan Supreme Court saying while Rudy was working as Donald Trump's lawyer, he ordered her to lie to the FBI and perform oral sex while he was on the phone talking to Donald Trump. Noelle Dumphy is also suing Giuliani for sexual assault and harassment. Dumphy charges Giuliani forced her to engage in violent sex and show up to video conferences topless. She was also ordered to work at the office wearing tight shorts that were red, white, and blue, as opposed to Rudy's shorts, which were red, white, and soiled. Dumphy claims Giuliani, while drenched in alcohol, would say horrible things about blacks, women, and Jews. In other words, he's a Republican. Special counsel John Durham, appointed by Trump's attorney general Bill Barr to look into Russiagate, issued a 300-page report concluding that in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, the FBI should have never begun an investigation into Donald Trump's connection to Vladimir Putin. Durham's investigation has resulted in two acquittals, and he is not expected to charge anyone else. Two staffers working for Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly were injured when a 49-year-old man walked into Connolly's Fairfax, Virginia field office and attacked them with a baseball bat. Congressman Connolly, a Democrat, was not there. Talking Points Memo reports that Arizona Republican Congressman Paul Gosar has a neo-Nazi working for him. Shocking that there's only one. In Farmington, New Mexico, three people, including the shooter, were killed and two police officers, along with several witnesses, were also wounded on Monday. Kid Rock is reportedly the biggest donor to Daniel Penny's defense fund. Penny White, a Marine veteran, has been charged with killing a black homeless street performer on a New York City subway using a chokehold. 
GoFundMe reports that Penny's GoFundMe campaign has raised $2 million, making it the second biggest GoFundMe campaign ever. Rock posted a message on GoFundMe calling Penny an American hero. He also referred to Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, as a POS. Alvin Bragg is black. Kid Rock is white. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill on Monday banning state funding for diversity, equity and inclusion programs at all Florida public universities. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned on Monday that if Republicans and Democrats don't resolve the debt ceiling crisis, our federal government will run out of cash by June 1st. For more on this, we are joined by the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. He also writes the Down With Tyranny blog, Howie Klein. Hello, Howie. Hi, how are you? Very good, very good. You know, I wanted to say something about uh, something that you were just talking about on the news, which was that, uh, that debt crisis thing, because um, you didn't, didn't mention something that just sort of broke uh, very in the last hour or so, which is that... Uh, the White House handed the Republican negotiators uh, a list of 12 uh, loopholes, tax loopholes that would have saved billions of dollars and, and said, let's cut these loopholes. And uh, the Republicans just out of hand, just rejected every single one of the 12 loopholes. I, I have a, a story uh, on my blog. I, I think it's coming out either later tonight or tomorrow that goes into the specifics of what loopholes they were trying to cut and what the Republicans had to say about it. Well, at Down With Charity, you also write about the GOP taking hostages, and you insist that Biden doesn't have to put up with this. Isn't, don't they control the House? Can't they gum up the works? How does he work around this with the debt ceiling they can talks? Problem. They can definitely make some problems, but, but Biden uh, can make himself into a great president by getting getting rid of this uh, hostage taking once and for all and this fake uh, unconstitutional debt ceiling. And he can do that through the 14th Amendment, and he should. And he, he's sort of afraid to. And someday a, um, a Democratic president with some guts is going to do it. And I'm afraid Biden isn't that one. What is in the 14th Amendment? What could he do? They, uh, it, it's unconstitutional for anybody to uh, threaten the, the debt of the United States. I mean, it's absolutely not permitted. I, I, I'm, I'm in the kitchen right now, so I'm, I'm not in front of my, my uh, computer where I could read the exact uh, words to you, but basically that's what it says, is that uh, the, 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 uh, the debt cannot uh, be uh, threatened. And that's exactly what the Republicans would do. I mean, I mean, you notice that when there's a Republican president in the Democratic Congress, the Democrats, even though they disagree, they don't do that. It's just the Republicans who do that. Right. And it, it needs to be stopped once and for all. I don't just mean it needs to be stopped for this round. I mean it needs to be stopped, period, forever. And that's what Biden should do. And instead of you know, being another mediocre president, he would go down in history as a heroic president. Right. But he won't do that. The 14th Amendment also forbids anyone from uh, serving in Congress if they participate in, insur in an insurrection. Right. That's a different uh, part of the 14th Amendment. And, and that can't happen because there, there wouldn't be any Republicans left uh, or almost no Republicans left in Congress. You write over Down With Tyranny that the debt ceiling talks reveal that the Republicans want to add 
$7 trillion to our debt? That's right. Their proposals, uh, you know, are, uh, are, are, are well, if, if all their proposals passed, the debt would be bigger, not smaller. So, how do, so for example, with tax cuts or what? How would they add to the debt? You're, you're sitting right there. Can you read it? I don't, I don't know. I, it's okay. We can move on because I wanted to ask you about how you, you, you think this is going to play out. Is it conceivable that by June 1st, we won't have, uh, we won't release uh, the debt ceiling, let it go higher, uh, and then we run out of cash, and then what happens? Well, there's no such thing as running out of cash for, for you know, the United States can't run out of cash because the United, United, there are a lot of ways to, to avoid that. And, and certainly uh, Biden can do that if, if he wants to. Um, so, no, we, there's, there's no running out of cash. What, what did you make of the town hall where Donald Trump said they shouldn't raise the debt ceiling and we should default? And then he was asked by Caitlin yeah. Collins. So, Go ahead. Yes, yeah, so, and uh, yes, he was asked by Caitlin Collins. Who, he was she, he was reminded by Caitlin Collins that that he had denounced that whole idea when he was president, and then he admitted that and he said, "Yeah, but that's when I was president." Right, right, and everybody laughed. So you know that's yeah. So that that's who Donald Trump is. That's what Donald Trump is all about, and that is what the Republican Party is now all about. They just they they just want to do whatever they can now to get him uh, elected, and. That includes uh, destroying the, the uh, economy of the United States, if not the whole world. And, uh, you know, that's who they are. That's what they are. And we're stuck with them. What did you because make? We're stuck with in Tennessee and Arkansas and you know, et cetera. Right. What did you make of the town hall? Did it make you nervous? Did it make you hopeful that he's been exposed? It made, it made me hopeful that the Democrats would get some good, uh, good sound bites for ads. Right. And what do you say to somebody like Chris Licht, who runs CNN? He maintains, we need to show the American people what the stakes are in the 2024 presidential election. So had we not seen Donald Trump on CNN, we would have no idea if he was dangerous or not. Nobody has a clue what this guy is like. We, we, we have to see him on CNN in order to make a decision. What do you think about platforming him on CNN? Well, first of all, you asked me what I think about uh, what I would say to Licht, which would be re resign. And um, I, I think that platforming him on CNN uh, is a big mistake uh, because there are, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but let's just say there are between 30 and 40 percent of Americans listen to that stuff and they love it. They think, yeah, that's my guy. Right. Uh, so, so I, and like, you know, sane people uh, were surprised by uh, what he said. This is, this is Trump. This is, uh, he was completely 100% on brand. Right. What do you think his chances are now uh, being accused and sort of convicted of not necessarily rape, but sexual assault how do the evangelicals square their religious beliefs with the fact that he's a rapist? Yeah, they don't care. They don't Just care. Do not care. Okay. No. You know, I, I have I have two sisters. 
One of them is um, sane, just a, just a regular normal person, and the other one is a MAGA. And uh, and the sane one asked the MAGA, you know, what she uh, you know right after the uh, town hall, she asked her what did she think, and and the MAGA said it, it was all fake news, none of it, none, none of the accusations uh, um, against Trump are real. It's all made up, and uh, and and she she then asked her. Did you did you see the Access Hollywood uh, tape? And the MAGA sister said no, she had never seen it. She didn't know what it was. And then she said, did you see that tape of Trump identifying um, what's her name? E. Carroll. E. Jean uh, Carroll. Jean Carroll uh, identified when Trump said she's not his type. Then Trump identified a picture of her as his former wife. Right. And. Uh, I mean, you'd think that everyone has seen that seen that video. It's certainly been played all the time when I have the TV on, and my and and the magazine had never seen it. She right. was unaware of it. Right. Are, are you cooking so, dinner? I'm not telling you about my uh, something like that. The the <laughs> point isn't that I want to tell you about my family. The point is that I want to tell you that magazines don't know about this stuff. They they're ignorant. They're living in their own uh, their own stupidity and ignorance. And, you know, the, the, the ratings for that, that town hall were gigantic. They were, they, I don't remember what they were exactly, but I think it was 1.3 million. And then the next day, CNN's ratings, you know, sunk back down to where they always are. So we need them to make money, right? He makes no, money. Well, we don't, but, well, <laughs> but, but they, uh, I guess Chris Lick probably was gambling that uh, some that there would be some stickiness, and that some of these magas who tuned in to see Trump would stick around and and start watching CNN, but they didn't. Isn't that interesting? That's really and interesting. You should have been able to figure that out. Yeah. yeah, that it's not the guests you have on the show or, or your network; it's the quality of the guests and what it reveals about your ethos. So. Speaking of ethos, I'm going to play a clip of Franklin Delano Roosevelt talking about an economic bill of rights. I know you had dinner with Alan Minsky. He's the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. He, along with Professor Harvey J.K., have been calling for a modern day economic bill of rights. You write about an economic bill of rights. This is from 1944. It is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wartime president, insisting that after the war, we have to fight a war on income inequality. This is pretty incredible stuff to hear from a president of the United States. This is 1944, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In our day, certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. 
the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. That is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1944, the same year he died, a year before Hitler died and World War II had ended. Howie Klein, you and I are cut from the same cloth, raised with the same values. If you're a Democrat and you get up every morning and don't think about an economic bill of rights, what should be done with you? What should we do with the, these? You call them dinos? Yeah. Well, the reason that I I, uh, I, I embedded that on my on my blog and asked my readers to to listen to it was is because um, there was a a, a, a poll that just uh, ran that day that that was just released that day, and they asked um, American voters, you know, registered American voters, likely likely voters what do you think of these things? And they, they didn't play the tape, but they listed them one after the other. And overwhelmingly, the American public wanted these things that, that Franklin Roosevelt spoke about. Um, even Republicans, I mean, not as big, big majorities of Republicans, but even majorities of Republicans agreed. Now, they didn't tell the Republicans that this was FDR. They just asked them, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? They, they, were, in, they were into all of them. Uh, you know, so I, I fault our politicians for not moving ahead, for being tepid about it. And that, that includes these dinos, uh, Democrats in name only. And there are lots and lots of them, and, and they're afraid. And they operate from a place of fear. And, that, and that's why, you know, 1944, the president called for this stuff, and it's almost uh, 2024, and a lot of it still hasn't been um, enacted, or if it has been, the things that have been enacted have only been partially enacted. You write over down with tyranny that when Roosevelt became president, there were 40 million Americans living in poverty. When Biden became president, Howie, how many Americans were living in poverty? 40 million. 40 million. Identical number. Yep. Smaller percentage. We've, we've grown. And then you have a picture, uh, an engraving at the... Roosevelt Memorial in Washington, D.C., that says the tests of our progress. This is from Franklin Roosevelt. And this should be like the first commandment in all religions. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. 
what else should we be talking about? If you go to Washington, no, D- that, that, I was going to say that goes right back to what we started talking about in the beginning of this call about these loopholes, because, uh, you know, hey, a well, loophole here, a loophole there. They, it comes to billions and billions of dollars. I mean, a loophole is, for example, when you, you don't have to pay taxes on uh, your yacht or private jet. It, you, get a, you get a tax deduction for buying a yacht and operating a private jet. It should be the opposite. You should pay higher taxes. But that isn't the way uh, the Republicans want it. That isn't the way conservatives want it. Uh, and, and, and just down the list of these loopholes are, are all of these, uh, these ways that the rich get richer and, and at the expense of the middle class and of, at the expense of the working families. You know, one of, one of them that, that I wrote a little more about was one that I experienced a lot when I worked at Warner Brothers, which is a uh, tax deduction that corporations can take for um, uh, food and beverages and entertainment. And that, that comes to gigantic amounts of money. I mean, I'm talking about billions of dollars because executives, and I was one of them, can go out and eat every night on the, uh, and it's on the government. Right. They can, I didn't do this, in order, uh, you know, $200 bottles of wine every day. And that's on, that gets paid by the taxpayers. They can, they can fly first class. They can stay in like in, incredible $2,000 a night suites. And all that gets paid by the, by the taxpayers. That's, that's, what, that's what a loophole is. And like I said, Biden was asking the Republicans to let's get rid of some of these loopholes. I mean, the ones that they were asking about that I'm sure of were, were not, even that, not even that much. They were like, you know, uh, trickery that uh, cryptocurrency gamblers use. Let's get rid of that loophole so the cryptocurrency gamblers can't rip off the public. And the Republicans said, no, they wouldn't go for it. Right. So, right. uh... Well, I'm sure Herman Cain, who used to head the Restaurant Manufacturing Association, loved those loopholes because it does keep restaurants in business. I mean, that is it is a way of subsidizing waiters and, and chefs in a way. But well, there are other ways to subsidize waiters and chefs. Uh, you know, you can do it for, for people who actually need that food rather than people who don't need the food. People who, you know, the executives at these companies they're making six and seven figures. They don't need to get these kind of breaks. How about the poor people who do need to get these kind of breaks? Right. Does anyone ever think of that? And the answer is no, they don't think of that. Or just opening up soup kitchens that are essentially restaurants and community gathering points where people can eat for free and talk and mobilize and plot the overthrow of the oligarchs. That's what I would like to see. You can't spend uh, as of t- as of today, that's illegal. You can't what? You can't get together and plot the overthrow of the oligarchs. As of today, that's illegal. In in Florida. Yeah, in Florida. Yeah. DeSantis signed a bill saying uh, no plotting allowed. Right, right. No plotting of equity. No teaching of equity. I want to talk about. Uh, there were there were five bills. One of them was no teaching of equity. Another one was no discussion of race. Another one was no plotting to overthrow the, the oligarchs. <laughs> so I want to get to uh, the Kentucky primaries and Thailand and Feinstein. But before we move on, you write over down with tyranny about the economic bill of rights, and I'm just going to list what you say should be enshrined 
into our Constitution. I mean, that is what the Economic Bill of Rights calls for. The same way you have a right to remain silent in the Fifth Amendment. These are basic rights that Franklin Roosevelt and you and Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America and Professor Harvey J.K. are calling for a right to a job, a right to adequate income, a right to food, shelter and recreation. Imagine that a right to recreation. You need to imagine that's what these loopholes are about. Recreation for the very, very wealthy. <laughs> That's what they, it's being paid for by the government. Right. I had front row tickets for the Lakers. I could go to any concert I want anywhere in the world and sit in the front row. And, and the taxpayer picked it up. Right. But the Republicans do not care if the 99% relax, can go camping, can buy a motor home. Uh, that that's it's amazing the vision that Franklin Roosevelt had back then calling recreation an inalienable right freedom from unfair competition and monopolies well that should be enshrined into our constitution uh, decent housing adequate medical care social security and education he did deliver on social security uh, Roosevelt I mean they deliver he did. It was it was partial. It was a partial delivery. It was fantastic, but there was much more that uh, the progressives want to include in that, and they had to compromise and not have some of that stuff in there. Like giving it to black people, to farmhands, nannies. The work that black people did in the '30s and '40s were exempted from social security. It's amazing. Right. Remember, the Democratic base in Congress was largely in the South. So all these white Southerners, uh, Roosevelt depended on them completely. He couldn't get anything done without them. And they loved the idea of the New Deal, except they didn't want black people to uh, participate. Yeah. So they did whatever they could to exclude the black people. And Professor Harvey J.K., who writes extensively on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, says that Truman could have gotten us something resembling what they had in Great Britain under Clinton Attlee, some kind of socialized medicine, but the Democrats in the South did not want black people getting free medical care. Racism, is that separate from uh, economic opportunity? Do, do we have. Of course not. In other words, you, you, do you think that making everybody uh, safe and secure financially inoculates them from racism or is racism something separate? I've been asking this question for the past two weeks. Do you think a rising tide lifts all boats and inoculates one of the added benefits of making sure everybody can eat and has a job is it inoculates them from racism? I don't think it necessarily does. It doesn't necessarily do it. It could help, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people are born racist. I don't believe that. I think that racism is taught. And, um, you, know, you know, poor white people are, are, are taught to be racist, uh, you know, to make themselves seem better than somebody so they don't feel like they're at the bottom of the heap. Right. 
Oh. And um, I, I, I have a cartoon up on Down With Tyranny also uh, that someone drew for me that I think is a fantastic cartoon. And it shows a very rich guy and, and also someone, a poor white guy. And the poor white guy is saying, you know, he, he, why he votes Republican. And the, the rich white guy is laughing at him and saying why he votes Republican, which is basically um, so that poor white guys will, you know, look the other way and not look at. So, uh, look, look at uh, at racism. Right. Look at and and adopt racism and embrace racism. Right. Let's go to Kentucky. Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, is from Kentucky. Rand Paul is from Kentucky. They're having uh, primaries on Tuesday in the Republican Party to pick a candidate for governor. There's several African Americans running for governor, one of whom is the attorney general, an African-American. So what are we looking at Tuesday? Well, we're looking at a bunch of Mac. So, you know, don't get excited. You're looking at a bunch of what? Uh, maggots. They're, they're all MAGA people. There's, uh, you know, there's one guy who's kind of a mainstream Republican, uh, who's the uh, secretary of agriculture or the commissioner of agriculture, where I'm not sure what they call it now. And he's, he's a mainstream Republican, but he's still, he's still a ma- I should say, a mainstream conservative, but he's still very conservative. And he's the best of them. The, the others, this attorney general, crazy woman, Chris, Chris Kraft, who, you know, she, she, and she was very frustrated. She was, she was Trump's ambassador to the UN after um, Haley. Nikki Haley left, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Chris Kraft to, you know, she was getting very, very desperate because the uh, attorney general is ahead of her and, and he's increasing his lead over her. So she made an announcement last week that when she's governor, there will be no transgender children in school. I mean, this, this is the level that we're talking about in, in the uh, Kentucky Republican looking primary. They're, they're all like absolutely awful. And there's sort of a fight, you know, to the bottom of who can be worse, because the, the feeling is that, you know, whoever is worse is going to win. Right. Now, there is hope in Kentucky. Isn't I wrote about kind of a joke. I wrote about it because it was a, it was a post about uh, all of the elections that took place this weekend. You know, in, in normal countries, they have elections on weekends. So pe- people don't have to take off from work and they can right. just go and vote on 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 a free day. So there were, there was a very, very important election in, um, in Thailand. There was one in Turkey and one of the Indian states, one of the giant Indian states, that's as big as many, most countries, they also had one. And in, in the Indian state, the, uh, Modi's party, the fascist party was defeated really roundly. And in, uh, in Thailand, there, where I was just a few weeks ago, and I noticed that there was an election going on, the, uh, the most progressive party uh, won the most seats, and by far. And the uh, the military junta-backed parties just lost everything. They're, they're, I mean, the, the main party of the current prime minister went down to 36 seats, uh, whereas the liberal uh, party, I think they won around 150-something seats. So it's, it was it was a big day in um, in Thailand, and then in Turkey we're left in a different kind of a situation. Again, another country I really love with a uh, kind of an authoritarian leader, and uh, he he for the first time he didn't win a majority, and nor did his um, parliamentary party win a majority. So there will be runoffs uh, in in at the end of May. Okay. So so it's still to be. 
uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel great about the way that's going to come out, but it still could be determined. Right. And maybe the authoritarian impulses in Europe are lifting. We have Orban, uh, but maybe Europe, Europe is souring on authoritarianism. Who knows? Hard to say. Before you go, Diane Feinstein, you do not like her. Do you have any sympathy? Well, I never have. I've yeah. known her from the time that she was on the board of supervisors, like, you know, the, the county board of supervisors back in San Francisco. And she was a dino then. She, you know, everyone knew it in San Francisco that she was the person who was the most like a Republican. And, and, no, and no one liked her. I mean, people, they tried to uh, impeach her and recall her uh, at one time when she became mayor. Once uh, Harvey Milk and, um, and George Moscone were assassinated, she was elected by the Board of Supervisors to be the next mayor. And then when she ran, she ran as an incumbent. I, at that time, I backed uh, Jello Biafra, the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. Right. There, were, there were, I believe, either 10 or 12 candidates, and Jello came in fourth. Right. Before you go, two, my candidate. two quick things. They're filming another documentary in your home. Who, who, uh, who spoke with you this time? For those of you who don't know Howie, before he ran the Blue America Pack and wrote down with charity. He was a big time record executor, executive and executor with Reprise, Warner Brothers and 415 Records and uh, look him up. It's, there's a whole other. And this went this went back to the 415 days in San Francisco. There was a club which had actually started in the 1930s and it, and it was it was for deaf people. It was, it was in the Mission District, which was a, uh, now the Mission District is very gentrified back then. You could hear gunshots every night, uh, and it was not gentrified at all. But there was this, um, this deaf space there, and um, some punk rockers asked them if they could um, put on shows. And the deaf, the people who were running it, who were deaf, said yes. Uh, and, and it became a, a regular venue for punk rockers. And so it was called the Deaf Club. And a, a deaf guy is the executive producer, and he came over to my house with a, with a crew, and uh, we spent a couple of hours talking about what that club was like. Wow. And that was fun. That, all, all my bands played there. That is fascinating. And everybody was rocking out and dancing. And you could feel... Right, and the way that people could, he, could, hear, uh, could hear the music... Right. And they, they all held balloons. So they would be standing there with uh, clutching a balloon and they would they would get the music from that. Also, you, you know, if you're if you're deaf, you can stand right in front of the uh, speakers and you don't go deaf. <laughs> if you're not deaf, you can't stand in front of the speakers or you will go deaf. Right. But uh, if you are deaf already, you can feel those vibrations as well. The other thing is that the floors were wooden and and you and also feel the vibrations of loud music from the wooden floors. So there were ways that they got into it, and, and it was you know fascinating. And the energy in that place was unbelievable, absolutely un unbelievable. And so that's what we talked about. It was I, fun. I want to see that. That sounds fascinating. I would assume at a Dylan concert they'd be the happiest people. They wouldn't have to hear his voice. I love Bob Dylan. That's not fair. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. I believe you will be joining us. Friday night with Jessica Anderson. We're going to do a, a, a fundraiser for Jessica Anderson. Is that correct? I'm so looking forward to it. And by the way, just so you know, Jessica Anderson won the Blue America contest. Uh, I sent her a $1,000 check today. 
We're raising money for Jessica Anderson. She is going to be the Democratic nominee for the Virginia. She is a, there's no change. There's no primary. She is the nominee already. So she's up against a Republican incumbent in a newly drawn district that's very, very 50-50. It's a, it's, a, it's a swing district, and she can win this thing and defeat the Republican who's calling herself a, um, an incumbent when there really is no incumbent because it's a new district. Right. It's in um, in Williamsburg, Virginia, and York County. And Virgi- this is to become a, a Virginia delegate. That's what they call them, delegates. And Virginia has an off-year election cycle. So Virginians go to the polls this November, and we will meet Jessica Anderson. She was on the show last week. Everybody loves her. She was on the show last week. Come to office hours on Friday night. We're going to fundraise for Jessica Anderson. Howie Klein will be there. Read him every day over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you so much, Howie Klein. My pleasure. Thanks. I'll talk to you. I'll see you Friday. Friday. Thank you. Read Howie Klein every day over at Down With Tyranny. He is my political compass. Nobody uh, knows more about progressive politics than Howie Klein. And you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up, my interview with former President Donald J. Trump. I want to ask you all, if you are enjoying this episode, to hit the like button. That's the best way to ensure that the show keeps coming your way. And please share it with your friends. The only reason, I say this all the time, the only reason any of you are listening to me right now is because one of your friends forwarded and copied and pasted the link of an episode and placed it in an email or put it up there on social media. So please share this episode if you liked it and please subscribe to my channel and go to my website and subscribe to my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. Well, Donald J. Trump is the former president of the United States, and I talked with him earlier today, and it is not Robert Smigel. I, I can swear on a Bible, this is Donald J. Trump. Thank you. Go ahead, take it, take it, take it, David. Thank you. Thank because you. I know, David, how much your people like to take. Uh, I'm sorry, my, my people? You know, David, the Soros people, the Soros worshippers, the mm. Soros backers, all mm. those people. Like the Jews. You're, you mean the Jews. Who said anything about the Jews? You're so gross, David, putting words in my mouth, David. Just, Mr. President, you just said the Soros worshippers. I have no idea what you're talking about, Come David. on, you're being disingenuous. I with love all- the Jews, David. I love Trump loves the Jews, David. My daughter married. A Soros-backed worshipping <laughs> person, David. Soros-backed. The terrific people, David. The Soros-backed, Soros-worshipping Soros people. That they have is, amazing powers, David. That is classic code for they have the amazing Jews. amazing powers, these people. They can take any judge and turn him into a liberal, David. <laughs> Any judge they want with their amazing sorrows back powers, Dave. <laughs> you do realize that this is... What? I'm talking about the sorrows people. You 
you're talking about the Jews. Did That's I it. mention the Jews? You're the one who can't stop talking about <laughs> the Jews, David. You're the only one in the room yeah, who said I... anything about the Jews. And by the way, I might as well be an honorary Soros-backed, Soros-worshipping person. Because <laughs> the Soros worshippers in the holy land of is Soros... They love Trump. I'm sorry, what 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 uh, country? What country are you talking about? The holy land of Is Soros. Is Soros. There's is a Soros, the capital Jerusalem. <laughs> so it used to be Tel, Tel Soros, and then I took care of that day. Like I said I want the embassy in Jerusalem. <laughs> Jerusalem. Jerusalem, because believe me, the Soros worshippers and Israel, they can't believe. I'll tell you what they can't believe, and this is so sad, David. Yeah. Did you know that the Soros-backed Soros worshippers in America, <laughs> they don't vote for Trump? It's incredible because the holy land of Israel <laughs> never had a bigger friend than Trump. Ask anyone in Jerusalem. Who's the prime minister of Israel? It's Benjamin Netan Yahusaros. <laughs> he knows where his matzah is. Did you say he knows which side his matzah has the horse He knows where his matzah is cream cheese. <laughs> He knows, David. He knows. So you are the biggest friend of Is Soros, the, the country Is Soros. Okay, okay. I, I think you're gaslighting me. You know, you're very charming. I don't and know what you're talking about, David. I, I feel your gas. Now I feel you're charming me. And first, uh, I don't like the Jews. Now I'm a gaslighter. Let me ask you something. I'm asking you to ask me. Okay. Why do I love the West Bank so much? Because I do. I love the West Bank. I love the West Bank, David. Okay. Why do I love the West Bank? Why do you? Go ahead and ask, David. Why okay. do I love the West Bank? Why do you love the Go West ahead. Bank? Why Go do ahead you, and ask. Why do you love the West ask Bank? Ask me, David. Why, the, the West Bank, why do you, Donald Trump, love the West Bank? Because it's the only bank in the world I don't owe money to, David. Get it? Hmm. West yes. Bank. Take yes. it, David. That's your joke. Take it. Take the joke, David. Thank you. Thank you. That's charity. That's me providing charity for poor Soros-backed people that need help, David. You're trying okay. to do a comedy. Take the joke, David. Thank you. Take the West Bank joke, David, just like you took the West Bank from the Palestinians. <laughs> See, that's not nice. No, David, take it. You people love. I love you people because you people just love to take. OK, again, with my take, people, David. my people. Why would you said anything about the Jews, David? <laughs> you, you just I haven't heard a single word. About the Jews, except you just said by people, the Jews, it's, it's a little uncomfortable. David, let me ask you something. How could Donald Trump, how could Trump possibly hate the Jews? My Lord and Savior, David, Jesus Christ, 
was originally a Soros back <laughs> Soros worshipping Sorosian. <laughs> he was a Sorosian? He was a Sorosian. And then he realized that the Sorosians were donating to Alvin Bragg, David. Alvin Bragg. To the disgusting, corrupt DA. So uh, Alvin so Bragg. The Sorosians were donating to Alvin Bragg. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to create my own religion. Hmm. It did, David. Made a fortune, too. <laughs> Jesus huge, made a huge fortune, David. Very smart. But love, David. It was all a lot of money, all made from love, David. Sweet. That is my exclusive interview with Donald J. Trump, former president of the United States. We talked earlier this morning. That is uh, Donald Trump, the 40. I'm being handed a note here. Hang on for one second. See, I'm being told. That that is not Donald Trump. I'm being told that it's Robert Smigel. Uh, I don't know who Robert Smigel is. I never met the man. Uh, I know that this is Donald J. Trump. I don't know who Robert Smigel is. So you're wrong. Once again, you're wrong. That is our show. Thank you so much. Please leave a comment. I read all the comments. If you're a regular listener, you know that I hit the heart button. I read. You can tell that I read your comment because I will hit the uh, heart button. I can't respond to all your comments, but I try to. And uh, please hit the like button. That's very important to keep this show to sustain the show. Please share it with your friends. We have a brand new audio podcast of my entire podcast that's posted every morning at 9 a.m. here on YouTube. I do, the show is essentially a podcast, an audio podcast, and we are posting the entire podcast every morning at 9 a.m. There's a new episode of my podcast, which is now coming out close to seven days a week. And you can, it's, it's audio, there's no video, but it comes out on YouTube at 9 a.m. Eastern, seven days a week. So please subscribe to that. And what else? Please subscribe to my newsletter and please share this. And office hours will be this Friday night at 8 p.m. We're booking it as we speak, but we will have Howie Klein and Jessica Anderson, who's running for delegate in Virginia. We're going to do raise some money for her and you can get to talk to her and ask questions. So office hours is every Friday night at 8 p.m. I want to meet my listeners. We have a small little show here and I like to meet the people who listen to this show. We have a small community. So go to my website and hit office hours and I'll give you the link. Or if you sign up for my newsletter, that always includes a, a link for, uh, for office hours. I'm going to end with Franklin Roosevelt, right? I'm going to use this as an opportunity to uh, say goodnight. Uh, I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. In our day, certain economic proofs have become accepted 
as self-evident, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.